1: This is Sue Jackson And my guest today is Hilton And we are on Skype From Australia to Australia And he has already got me laughing So <laughs> By a few hand signs That he was sending me But I uh, first of all just want to Welcome you Hilton And thank our mutual friends The Irwigs For actually putting us in contact With each
2: other Thank you Sue and thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a nice chat.
1: I'm also really looking forward to it. Hilton is a man of um, of many talents. He is a an executive, a music producer, a publisher, a music publisher, producer an online music pioneer. And he was mm-hmm. brought up in South Africa initially um, and then left for America and then for um um Sydney where he is now. But he actually has so many incredible, well known people that he has worked with, especially Johnny Clegg. He produced his both his albums, all his albums actually. You worked for with Savuka and And um Hilton, you were actually you initially were Studying to be an accountant. Now, did you find that very exciting?
2: Um, <laughs> I was doing a BCom and uh, I did some work, uh, some summer work at uh, an accountants' office. And um, after a couple of boring days, I—not um, to say that I disparage accountants in any way—some of my best friends are accountants. <laughs> but um, I, I was called by. Uh, our agent, I was playing semi-professionally while I was at university, playing on at different nights and on weekends in a duo called Hilton and Howard. And Morris um, Fresco, our agent, found and said, do you want to go on a trip for three weeks around uh, the Mauritius, Seychelles, Madagascar, etc.? And all you have to do is work half an hour a day and the rest of the time can be a holiday and we'll pay you, I don't remember the amount, but certainly much more than I was earning or that I could be earning. And I said yes, and uh, that was... I then said I wouldn't be an accountant, but I was going to go and work after I finished my BCom for a few years and then do an MBA. But I ended up going to Gramophone Record Company, which is part of the Gallo Group, and I never left the music business.
1: And from there, you actually, you, you are incredibly well known, Hilton, for other things that you, for many people that you've worked with. You worked with Paul Simon on his Graceland project. You worked together on that. Harry Belafonte, you worked with him with his Paradise in Ghazan Kula, and Carol King, her in concert. Um, that was in 1994, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And uh, and you also worked with Lebo M, and you put yeah. him in contact with Hans Zimmer, and you also wrote um, with Hans Zimmer for Power of One, the the music for that, and in, and according to Lebo M, M. He was working for you. He said he was on the streets at the time when he arrived at you. Can you tell? You were in Los Angeles at the time. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Um, Yeah, I didn't. By the way, I didn't write anything with Hans. Uh, I I would never dare to be uh, considered any kind of equal of Hans's. I um, produced with him. Oh, yeah. I I had uh, been working on. um, I was the music supervisor for the Power of One movie. And uh, I hired Hunts for that, and uh, in the interim, uh, I was sitting in my studio in LA and uh, my secretary came in and said, there's two guys at the back door that want to meet you." So I went there, and there were these two little guys uh, who introduced themselves. I'm Ron Kuini and I'm Lebo Maraki, We're ANC a uh, few uh, refugee students here in l a and we'd like to make some music." And Solly Latwaba, who was Johnny Clegg's bass player, had told them to come and see me. So I said, "Okay, guys, I'll I'll do you uh, a favor and I'll give you a few days of free studio time, do some demos, and uh, we'll see what happens from there." So they did the demos, and uh, at the end, I wasn't sure what I could really do with them at all. But then, when we were working on Power of One, Hans uh, said to me, "Listen, I need an African lyricist because you know this scene here, a scene ABC, uh, needs some." Some African lyrics, and it's going to be a big choral. I'm going to hire a sixty-piece uh, choir, etc., etc. Do you have anybody in mind? And I thought, hmm, maybe I'll, I'll take Lebo down to uh, to have a chat with with Hans, and that was the beginning of all that. I mean, that was power of one, and then, of course, the next thing they did together was The Lion King.
1: The Lion King, absolutely amazing. You know, I think what you don't understand, perhaps, or maybe you do, but you, you, you just might not say so, is the power that music actually does bring. You know, we called our program The Power of Freedom. But, you know, I received a a, a message from a friend, Jenny Crangley, um, and she said, it is music and dancing that make me at peace with the world. And that was from
2: Mandela.
1: Do you feel
2: that way about music? Absolutely. You know, um, I remember as a kid uh, lying on the floor just listening to A Wider Shade of Pale, which was banned in South Africa at the time, and Lord knows why. Uh, and songs like that, and just basically drifting into a into another universe. And uh, there was just such a love for for what I was hearing. Particularly, the '60s was such a rich period of. Of incredible the Beatles, music. Was coming and absolutely. Beatles, uh, Crosby Stills Nash and Young. I remember when I first heard the first uh, song on that album on Deja Vu with the harmonies in the middle, I ran home from Barry Gordon's record store in Killarney to our flat, said to my mom, I have to have this. You have to give me five Rand to buy this album, et cetera, et cetera. So it was always a, a passion apart from the fact that when I was a kid, I obviously had some, some stories about music as well.
1: And do you feel that you were actually you have an intuition about what works and what doesn't? Because a lot of you know, when I was reading through Paul Simon and, and Harry Belafonte, all of those a lot of them came to you with ideas. And so was there an intuitive feeling that you actually had about certain things?
2: Um I you know, I I don't think there are there are certain people through the eras that have been the gods of the music industry side of things. You know, I remember when I first was working for CBS, uh, Godard Lieberson was probably the original kind of music man in New York. Clive Davis, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the documentary on him on Netflix. Uh, you know, those sorts of guys were just incredible, incredible musical uh, pioneers. Um, but, uh you know, the story that I think of most is when uh, Thriller sold 25 million copies, I believe that legend has it, or in fact it was true that uh, Quincy Jones was asked, to what do you attribute the success? And he said, I just do my job, and at the end I stand up and wait for the Lord to walk through the room.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, there's something that inspires all of us, some better than others. I, uh, again, mention others rather than me. But um, there's, there's clearly an intuition when you hear a song or when you hear a recording as to whether it's going to work or not, and some of that is pure intuition, gut feel, and some of it is just experience.
1: Your, your experience, a lot of your experience started here. Um, we'll get back to that in a moment.
0: This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: I'm back with Hilton Rosenthal and I actually mustn't look at you when we go to adverts because uh, you're pulling faces at me. Our topic is music is freedom. He's laughing now and it's wonderful being back with Hilton. Hilton produced Jaluka and Sabuka albums and um, in Hilton's words, it doesn't matter where music comes from. It's something that can touch the heart no matter where it emanates from. Is that, that is your, what you actually said. And I, it's beautiful.
2: Do you remember saying it? I don't remember saying that. I, there's a lot of things I say. I don't remember, especially if it was yesterday. <laughs> but, um, then, it, it sounds like something I could have said. Let's put it that way. Yes, it absolutely. was,
1: it was something you said. Now you and Johnny have got different ideas about how you met. So I was listening to your, uh, your, the, um, Recording uh, from the South African, uh, Australian South African Film Festival And um, it, I found that actually very interesting Because when you, you were talking about how you got hold of Muriel, Johnny's mom And asked her what he was doing Because by that stage you had actually been given a, a, the task of, of doing African music Is that so?
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, I started, the only way I could get a job at the record company when I finished uh, university was in the accounts department because the, you know, the industry was very small. Um, and I was promised that spend a year in the accounts department learning the business and we'll move you somewhere else later. During that year, um, a lot of my work was done doing royalties for the artists and processing recording fees for the artists in those days. The black musicians were being paid five rand per side. That is to say, per side that they, of a seven single. So they would record a seven single. If there were two sides, they would be paid 10 rand session fee each. Uh, because of that, they used to rehearse. And on one day in particular, I processed, uh, fees for 35 sides in a single day. Literally, mm-hmm. they, they were so well rehearsed. They went in, they played the song they recorded next, 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 next in order to, Inflate their, their income basically.
1: What were the uh, white What were the white uh, recorders being uh, singers getting at the time?
2: Um, I can't recall, but it was a different type of scale because they were working on a three hour session fee. Nobody was making a lot of money, but in fact the black musicians were making more that were working that way because they were recording so many songs.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: anyway, um, <clears throat> when the year came up. I went to my boss and I said, "Look, I need to get out of here and get into something creative." And he said, "Well, it isn't really a position for you, but do you have any ideas?" And I said, "Yeah, I think so. I uh, I believe that the black music business has been really incorrectly handled, and that we should start looking at developing artists, supporting them, buying them buses, buying them equipment, giving them rehearsal rooms, putting them on the on the road, so that they could basically earn a living outside of just the recordings." and then, And, in turn, that would promote our records, so I was uh, given the job of uh, general manager of Isibai Music. and through that, I started understanding and listening to to this incredible music, which had been totally foreign to me when I was a kid. You know when I was a kid, that sort of music was the stuff that was played outside in the in the backyard on the on the radio on radio zoo or whatever and i you know I didn't understand it or really appreciate it until I was living it with these guys. And I then started having this vision that I I wanted to do something that combined the music I'd grown up with and the music I'd come to love. And I'd been given permission by the guys at CBS Records in New York to have a, a discretionary budget, to do something experimental. Uh, and I tried numerous things and nothing was working. And I was starting to get despondent. And one Sunday night I was sitting at home thinking about this and what am I going to do? And uh, I recalled that I'd seen Johnny and Sipo at the uh Great Hall in 1973. And in the interim, Muriel, Johnny's mom, had been a promotion lady for our company. So every year or so, she would wander in and say hi to everybody. So I'd met Muriel through that. But, you know, I saw Muriel as a promotion lady that, uh, was promoting. She kept talking about her son and can you introduce me? You know, she would talk to my boss and say, can you in- introduce me to Simon and Garfunkel's manager, Johnny this, Johnny that? That obviously subliminally uh, stuck in my head. And on the Sunday night, I thought, I must call, I must call Muriel and, uh, see what's happening. And I went to the phone book. I knew she lived somewhere in Yoghurt or know, that sort of area looked up MPNR and picked up the phone and asked her what was happening. She told me that that uh, Johnny was planning to sign a record contract that week, but that he was only doing it because he couldn't find anything else. So uh, I so what did I want to do? So I explained that I had this vision of mixing different cultures and different music, etc., and she said, well, that's really what John wants to do. Why don't I set up a meeting, tell him to wait, and then you guys can meet and take it from there, see if something goes
1: and then I mean it certainly did but where did where did because when they started um travelling if you you had a very a small uh, budget, so how did they afford to actually go overseas when they first went to england how, where did that money come from
2: um well, you know, we'd we'd already had some hits in South Africa by the time we went to England. You know, the first album we put out, I was still at CBS Records, uh Universal Men. And when I took it to the sales meeting, I was hearing things like, what are you going to do with this? It's too black for whites. It's too white for blacks. Uh, we, we're never going to sell this. Anyway, at that time, Capital Radio had started playing it, although nobody could hear Capital Radio because they were having problems with their uh, transmitters. But we had the first number one. Africa was the first number one on capital. And that just started a little buzz. And through the year, you know, we were selling a few albums here and there. By the end of that year, I'd left the company and formed my own company. And about six months later, I I, I thought I would continue producing Johnny and Seapot of four CDs, Um And uh, I got the feeling that they were really not interested. Uh, the company wasn't interested. So I approached them and said, I'll buy the album back from them. And I signed John and Sipo Direct, and we produced African Litany. And when that came out, and MP and African Sky Blue hit hit around, then we were starting to sell some records. So then the budget started, you know, expanding somewhat. But our international uh, exposure really started. The first, there was a guy in Germany, a German guy called Sherman Heining, who was working for an Italian record company. How's this for a multicultural thing? Contacted me and said, I've heard Scattlings of Africa. And I'd love to release it in Italy. Which they did. Nothing happened. But then I got a call from uh, someone who became one of Johnny and my best friends, a guy called John Craig, who had a label called Safari Records at the time in London. They were really a punk label. But John was just a a really, really interesting guy, and uh, he loved the record, and he said, listen, I'm going to make this a hit. So it started that he put it out, I think, in January 83, and we got uh we got pretty close to the top forty in England and he said, Come over now, you know, we'll fly you over for promotion. So that's really how the international budget started.
1: Oh, okay. Now Scatterings of Africa has an interesting story as well about African voices. So just uh, do you know what I mean about that? That uh, when you were I think so, uh, I think won't so, yeah. you just share that story?
2: Yeah, uh, uh well it's it's a uh that's kind of the link to the Paul Simon project, effectively, because after we'd had hit in England and uh, it also was a hit in a couple of Scandinavian countries and in Canada. And then um, I got a call from Warner Brothers in the States saying we'd like to sign. Now, this was an interesting thing because, you know, the phone was, re- was ringing at 3 a.m. in the morning. And it was a guy called Seymour Stein, who was one of the legendary uh, ears, another one of those guys that I would put in the legend category. He had Sire records, he signed Madonna and many others. Seymour phones at 3 in the morning and says, Hilton, uh, we want to talk to you about Johnny Clegg. And I, I said, Seymour, it's 3 in the morning. He said, no, it's not. It's 6 o'clock in New York. You know, I said, no, no, but we have a different time zone, mate. <laughs> Um that led to my going to uh, Los Angeles to meet with at the time Lenny Warrenker, who had just become president of Warners. And Lenny had produced James Taylor and Randy Newman and a uh, you know, multitude of guys. So I walked into the office and uh, we sat down and he said, well, play me what you got, you know, and I, I played him Scatlings of Africa and when the humming came up, you know, he just went, man, I love those African voices. And I, I, I just didn't have the heart to tell him that it was basically Clegg, Van Rosenthal, and a couple of other guys that were singing, uh, with with some some black guys. But yeah, he loved the African voices. I'm not uh, disputing that I'm an African.
1: Absolutely, sir. So it was the African voices. I loved that story. I really did. And then there was another very interesting story that uh, that I, I heard um, on your one um, interview, and that was. The uh, going to um Zululand for the blessing from the ancestors that Sipo wanted you to do before you went to England. Just I would love to hear a bit about that.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, you know, Steve said, uh, listen, I, I can't go anywhere right now with this project without actually getting a blessing from the ancestors. So you guys will have to come down to my place in Zululand and uh we'll we'll see what the ancestors feel about this. So um, we got in a combi, Johnny's combi. They were doing everything, travelling everywhere. The band in the combi, but Johnny was still at that point in time. They were they all had day jobs still, um, and, uh, and we finished after work at like five thirty or six in the evening, and we drove down to C-Post place near Greytown. Arrived at one two in the morning, and uh, we got to the to the border of his property, and there was a fence there, and we pulled up. And a little guy, a little kid came out, just in his skins, and he spoke to Johnny, and uh, he went back, and I said to John, what's happening? he said, no, SIPO, you know, SIPO's coming soon. And we waited about 30 minutes, 40 minutes, I don't remember exactly how long, but it was long. And uh, I said to him, what's going on? And he said, look, SIPO has to show these people that we respect him and that we waited for him here.
0: Uh-huh. He said,
2: well, it wouldn't show the level of respect we have for him. Anyway, eventually Sipo came out and we we were ushered into this uh, into his ancestral uh, rondavel, which had uh, no electricity. it was a concrete floor concrete walls with a thatch roof, but a generally electric refrigerator running from <laughs> running <Right>. with, <laughs> from the generator anyway and the, the guy we were all told to sit around the corner uh, around the walls and Sipo got into the middle and started saying some chants and uh, Rubbing a stick with some brew that he'd made, and if the in fact the he told us that uh, if if this bubbled over, this the spirits and the ancestors accepted us. Oh, happened, oh then fascinating! A, a goat was slaughtered, and uh, we uh, then uh, I didn't partake, unfortunately or fortunately, but uh, and then we got in the car to drive home. But they gave us these. You see, pandas. They took the goat skin, cut a slit in it, put it on our arms, and we were told that it shouldn't be taken off until it falls off. So we all got in the car, and this uncured uh, stuff was on our arms. We had to drive all the way home with our arms out the window, because it was already beginning to smell. And I got home. The next day, my dad took a look at this. Now, my dad was, you know, an Eastern European uh, migrant uh, who is a very, very traditional guy in a different sort of tradition. <laughs> yeah. And this little old Jewish man said to me, what is this? And I explained it to him and he just scratched his head and went, well, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> but I it must have been a
1: very moving experience, it is, wasn't it?
2: Totally, totally incredible. I feel honoured to have been able to partake in that.
1: You know, what I hear and what I've read is that you cannot Believe how much unity you actually brought into the country. And this this message was from Kerry Rubenstein, a a wonderful young woman who I I know well. And she said that Johnny was her hero, and I don't believe anyone was as awesome. He touched my soul, inspired me, made me feel proud to be a South African, reminded me of my youth, pumping my fist, taught me about my country, and it's people through stories and song. I loved the feeling of unity at his concerts. And she said she saw um, a Johnny and Jenny towards the end of Johnny's life. And she she pumped her, her arm up and down as she saw them was at one of the hospitals. But, you know, do you realize the unity that you actually brought into the country with the songs that you produced?
2: Well again, you know, I was just the facilitator. You know, the, the bottom line It's a very
0: big beginning,
2: thing. Beginning it was Johnny and SIPO, and I think that the message that they had was the beginnings of those real messages. Uh that people could for the first time witness what South Africa could become by watching them on stage. So but you, you know, have to I, believe
1: in them, Hilton.
2: I certainly did, and you know I'm proud of it, but uh, you know I've ne- I don't really give much thought to the fact that that was because of me that that type of unity happened. I really respect that it did, and I'm very happy to to be, uh, to be mentioned like that, but as I say, it's not something that I, I think about from day to day. for yeah, the one story that always sticks in my mind about that unity was we came back from England after the hit, and all of a sudden the white media started taking notice of Jaluca. Of mm. course, you have to get in England now. You better be serious. You know, before that, we were ignored by the media in South Africa. The black radio stations said we won't play music that's got English in it. You know, Radio Zulu, etc. Sutu and uh, the Radio Sutu wouldn't play even the Zulu songs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, uh, Radio Five and uh, I felt in those days, or Springbok Radio, was not was not really supporting us until this happened. So uh, there was a, fair, a homecoming concert at uh, Coliseum. And the people were being told by the security guards all the time to sit down. And people would jump up, and they would. They was were it mixed? Forced. Were they
1: allowed to mix? Yes, they
2: they, whether they were allowed to or not, there was never a Juluka concert that was segregated. There were numerous concerts that were closed down because they were they were unsegregated.
0: Zen, they were Zen. Zen.
2: Uh, oh. And in fact, there were times when Johnny and Sipo played in the townships where they were arrested, etc., etc. But this was mm-hmm. a mixed crowd, Um and because the people had paid for their seats. The security guards were saying, you cannot stand in your seats. So what had happened was that during the, the, the performance, people had gravitated to the sides of the hall, and there were two lines uh, on, on either side. And when scattlings came came about, they started playing scattlings, the two lines became conga lines and just started dancing towards each other, down the, the, down the sides of the hall and across the front in front of the stage. And as they got in front of Johnny and Sipo in the middle, the guy on this one side was black, the guy on the other side was white, and the two of them put their arms around each other. Oh, and they danced in a circle, and the whole wow. audience went crazy. Those sorts of moments make me realize, yes, there was something to that, uh, that fact that we did do something.
1: Wow, well, that brings tears to my eyes, I must admit. You know, you were. It was during apartheid era when all of this was happening. It was very dark days in South Africa. Were you yourself ever at risk from the security police, you and your uh, family?
2: Not, uh, not overtly. Uh, when we came back, there was there was whole issue with the cultural boycott in England, and they're, they're not allowing us to have work visas to perform on television. And there was uh, a lot of controversy around this. And when I came back from England, the front page, we were allowed eventually to do the final TV show if we gave the money to the anti apartheid movement, which Johnny and Sipo immediately said yes to. Um, I got home and I was talking to my mom on a an illegal mobile phone, not a mobile, but, you know, those portable phones, and it was noisy. So I said, hang on a sec, let me go in and pick up the real phone. And I picked up the main line, and at the, the front page of the Sunday Times that day it said Jeluka gives money to anti-apartheid movement. Uh, there was a noise on my phone. From that day until the day I left, I could hear people talking on the other side. They were clearly listening. So you were being recorded. At the phone down, I heard a ping afterwards where the recorder turned off, and it was just very subtle uh, intimidation, shall we say. But uh, I was never ever, you know, directly threatened by the police.
1: And, and when you actually left South Africa, well, how did that feel to you to actually leave a country that obviously meant a lot to you?
2: And still does. Um, it, it was tough. You know, I felt that at the time, I mean, those were really dark days. Um, I remember, I guess we'll talk about them a little more later, but Paul Simon called me and he said, have you seen what's going on there? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, there's this lady that's had a tire burning, a burning tire put around her neck. Now, at that time, we hadn't seen that footage, and he described it to me. And he said, you know, really, you should you should get out of there for your career, etc., etc. It's time that you should you should leave. And that was the beginnings of, you know, we'd we'd been thinking of leaving anyway. We felt we had young kids, and we were scared about what the future was going to bring. Mm. Uh, because I had an opportunity to perhaps work overseas and I'd really got some profile internationally, then it was worth leaving. But you know, the old cliche of uh, you can take uh, the boy out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the boy. Absolutely.
1: I'm yeah. um, pleased they haven't taken Africa out of the boy. Listen, boy Hilton, just wait a moment. Thank you, Craig.
0: This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson only on 101.9 High FM. I am back with um, Hilton
1: Rosenthal. This is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. And we are discussing Hilton's journey from South Africa to Los Angeles to eventually to Australia, but and the people that he met along the way. Before you left, tell me, you you actually you said that Paul Simon had said to you do you know what's going on here? Now, um, Hilton, how did Paul Simon get to you? How did he come to actually contact you?
2: Um, I um, I alluded to that a bit earlier that Paul had done his um, a Hearts and Bones album with Warner Brothers in the states, and that was the guy that uh, you know, Lenny Warner had signed um, scatterlings.
0: Mm.
2: So Paul had been given a tape. By a friend, um, which was basically a pirate tape that just said uh, accordion drive hits, gumboots number two, something like that, and he fell in love with the first song on the tape and um, went to Lenny, his record company and said, "Listen, you know what do you think I'd like to do something with this uh African you know do you know anyone who can help me this is African music i don 't know what the song's called. All I know is where it comes from. Lenny said, "I think you should call him." So, again, one of the calls at 3 a.m. in the morning, hi, Hilton, will you hold for Lenny? Lenny gets on the phone and says, hey, listen, you know, Paul Simon's got this song, do you mind if he calls you? And I kind of went, hang on, let me think about it. Paul Simon wants to call me. Yeah, well, uh, okay. (laughs) Maybe. next week. (laughs) so Paul called and, uh, you know, he, he told me the story and he told me what it was. He said, can you track down what this song is? So I started doing some scouting around and, uh, found out that it was a song by the boyoyo Boys. Um, the, uh, the song wasn't called Gumboots, but the, you know, the album was called Gumboots and Paul just stuck with the title Gumboots. So anyway, I, see, I said, what do you want to do with this? He said, well, can you perhaps get the ability to buy the multi-tracks? These are, you know, would be the 24-track recordings with all the different instruments separated. And I can pay the record company and the artists for it and, you know, try and take some of it out, do what I have to do. And I said, look, you know, I, that was my job in the first place. That around exactly that time, nobody recorded to multitrack. Everybody just recorded straight, straight to stereo. So there's no ways that you would actually have a multitrack of that, even if people wanted to give it to you. So um, I said to him, well, I could put the original band together for you. And he said, hmm, that's interesting. I said, well, what are you going to do with this? And he said, I have no idea. I just love the music. So I was the one who then said, well, why don't you do an album of South African music? And he said, how am I going to do that? I said, let me send you a whole bunch of things. And I sent him about 30 albums. And a couple of months later, he said, I've gone through all this. Why don't you put together a recording session in Johannesburg with the following artists, blah, 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 blah. That's how it all started.
1: Unbelievable, and I see he says working behind the scenes in every case was Hilton Rosenthal, the crucial catalyst for world music so that's uh, and you you actually um, introduced him to many other people as well, and then tell me a bit about Harry Belafonte
2: mm, well, it was a time where we were allowed five hundred grand spending money to go overseas on business rand a day. That was the allowance. And uh, that wouldn't buy you the toilet at a decent hotel, effectively, to rent. That's so I had, <laughs> I had been approached by a guy called Brad Gelfond, who was an agent at uh, Regency Artists that became, uh, became part of William Morris. And Brad uh, became, came to London to watch Juluca and their first tour, and he signed them as an agent. And through that, I had introduced him to Paul, and he had become Paul's agent for the Graceland tour. So Brad said, look, you know, it's crazy. You must come and stay at my place if you're coming here to work. For, you know, I was doing regular business trips back and forth. So I was staying at Brad. I woke up one morning. I said, you know, I've got this song that we just recorded about uh, Nelson Mandela called uh, Asimbonanga. And um, I would love to play it to Harry Belafonte because I hear Belafonte and Sidney Poitier are going to be doing an ABC miniseries on... And Dana. so he said i don't know about the miniseries but uh come to the office at five o'clock this afternoon harry's best friends with richard rosenberg who's my boss the head of the agency and he's coming in for a meeting at five o'clock so i went there and uh i think harry was uh, a little bemused at the fact that they were bringing in this white boy that you know he knew the background of uh of Graceland, et cetera. And I, I said to him, look, you know, you're doing this TV show. Can I play you a song? And he said, sure. And I played him a Simba nanga and he literally turned around and he went, do you want to produce my next album?
1: Wow. Gosh. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: you know, effectively, the, the, the catalysts that pushed me to move to LA at the time that I did was that I went to see, uh, Warners about, uh, about, uh, my future. And on the way, I had gone through London and I'd signed a contract with EMI to sign Johnny Clegg and Sabuka. And then I got to L.A. and Harry asked me to produce his album. I basically had my first year's work cut out. Gosh, and that was the catalyst that wished me to, to leave at that time.
1: So behind every great man, there's a family that actually relocates with him.
2: Yeah, they're the, they're the true heroes. That's for sure. You know, my wife Linda and my kids... Boy, I don't, I don't know how they stuck with me and put up with me. But, uh, boy, I owe a lot to, and to the kids.
1: And they've moved with you, which is amazing. A message came through just now, and it said, Mr. Hilton Rosenthal, it's actually anonymous, it says, Sabuka songs gave me hope in darkness and helped me stay in South Africa. Please, can you help us again now? What is your well, answer to that?
2: um <laughs> i'm not it's quite actually sure a lovely message it's a, it's a lovely message and, you know just by the way your talk your, your comment earlier about how music unifies and uh inspires people. I cannot tell you through the years how many letters we got at the office addressed to Johnny about how he had he, his lyrics and his music had helped people get through the toughest times can so the irony was that you know I still always remember this person who said uh, I've been struggling with chemotherapy and cancer and uh, Johnny's music is the only thing that gets me through.
1: Oh, amazing. So, uh,
2: can I, again, can I help? <laughs> I, I don't know what I can do to help uh, particularly, but I am, I do have a project uh, on the go that I'm working on at the moment, which is basically rooted in South Africa. And that is we're working on a movie based on the life of Huma Sakela.
1: Oh, how uh,
0: wonderful. A we'll
1: relation. get back to that in a minute.
0: This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hello, I'm back with Hilton Rosenthal, music publisher, producer, uh, lyric writer, singer himself. And Hilton, you were telling me about Hugh Masekela that you're doing a project what you were about to say, and his relationship with someone. Who was his relationship with?
2: With uh, Father Trevor Huddleston. um,
1: Oh, that should be wonderful.
2: So that's an exciting project, which we're in development on now. We're almost ready to roll, and uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm going to be back there, at least starting to record, and we'll be filming there next year,
0: hopefully.
1: Oh, fantastic. Wow, that's a... So the message goes on of peace and looking at our past and actually recognizing all our parts in it. And uh, I think that's wonderful. Now, you know, we go, I'm going to be told to wrap up shortly, but I just wanted to discuss Concert in the Park because yeah. you apparently you were flying over um, in a helicopter, flying back from um when you saw Ellis Park below. And what yep. did you say
2: when you saw Ellis Park? What had happened? So you
1: were was, with Izzy Kirsch.
2: Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I was listening to 702 the Saturday before that. And they had a telethon for uh, Operation Hunger. And I still remember Pierre de Chamois ch- challenged all other South African artists to give 5 rand, 10, 25 rand, whatever it was. And I was sitting thinking, you know, whatever gesture I could do right now, I'm not sure that, you know, I'd like to try and do something bigger. I wonder what I could do. So anyway, as fate has it, and of course you know you talk about uh, fortuitous circumstances, uh, it was the Monday or Tuesday right after that, and Izzy called me and he said, you know, we've just opened our station, our transmitters in the new, our new transmitters in Botswana, and uh, would you like to come up for lunch with me in the helicopter? I said, oh, okay, <laughs> I wasn't that keen on helicopters, but. uh I was very fond of you, We were, in fact, in, in certain things, business partners, uh, or he was a business partner of mine, and um, we were flying back, and just so, so happened that we fi- flew over Ellis Park, and that triggered the, the memory for me, and I went, you know, I heard your telethon on Saturday, wouldn't it be amazing if we could basically get that place and do a concert with all these artists? So he looked at me and he went, well, you know, I know Louis Late. He's the trustee for Ellis Park, and I can call him this afternoon and find out if he would give us the stadium. And literally that afternoon, Louis Late said yes. I think in the next three days, I spent all day on the phone talking to just about every manager, producer, vendor of concert um, stuff. And uh, every single person but one, <laughs> uh, who will remain nameless at this point, uh, Gay said, we'll give you everything for free. The only deal with Dallas Park was as long as you pay for the cleaning. <laughs> so, anyway, that one person I just called up the company, the sound hire company who used to hire them every every week, month for different things, and I said, "Look, you know, this guy's giving me a hard time." And the next, and this this person phoned that person and said, "Listen, you know, you ever want to get from us again? You do what what uh, what we're all doing." So literally, it was all put together within a few days. Um, I rushed so quickly that uh, it took me time to uh, to get a committee together, which incorporated and was inclusive of the black producers, etc. But that was eventually done as well. And uh, in a way, the rest was history. You know, I mean, you talk about surreal events. We we were hoping for twenty thousand people, maybe. I remember on the Friday we had sold thirty-five thousand tickets at the end of Friday business. The concert was on Saturday. Um Percy Tucker at uh, CompuTicket had given us free ticketing services. And on the Monday he called me and he said, thanks very much. I did no business on Saturday other than Concert in the Park. We sent, we sold another 75,000 tickets on the morning of Saturday through CompuTicket. Uh, we ended up with about 120,000 people in Ellis Park because what happened, I heard a yell over the security system saying, come to the back gate. And I looked, I got there and there was such a big crowd outside trying to get in. The gate literally came off its hinge. Thankfully, no one was hurt and a whole lot of other people that just couldn't get tickets got free tickets effectively at that point in time. <laughs> but, you know, I, the head of police said to me in the middle, in the, the early evening, you know, we have rugby matches here with 30,000 people and today with 120,000, we've had less incidents of bad behavior than we have normally for a rugby match.
1: Isn't that beautiful? And Hilton, on that note, I'm being told to wrap up, but you know, I just wanted to end with this. It says, when the pain penetrates, the music resonates. And I think that's very much of what, hap- uh, what happened at that concert. That there was a lot of pain. South Africa has gone through a lot of pain. We continue to go through it. But I think as long as the music plays, we can all find a, a, a reason to go on. And we're going to be ending with your, the, the song, Scatterings of Africa. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for being on my program with me. Next year, there's a lot more that I'd like to discuss with you, but we are being told to wrap up, wrap up, wrap up. I am going to wrap up, Craig. Thanks so much. And thank you, Hilton. I'll be in contact with you as soon as we finish the show.
2: Thanks very much, Sue. And my last word, halala for Johnny Clegg.
1: Halala, absolutely. Thank you.